0: So if if you have a Bible, I encourage you, open up to the book of 1 Samuel with me. It's towards the beginning of your Bible, past Genesis, Exodus. Got to go a little ways you'll find 1 Samuel. I won't be reading this out loud for us this morning. Rather, I will tell the story and draw observations as we go. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, that would be wonderful. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, it starts out with a certain man from the hill country of Ephraim. This is right in the middle of the country of Israel. It says that his name is Elkanah, and he has two wives. One is named Peninnah, and the other is named Hannah. And Peninnah has children, it says, but Hannah has none. So importantly, the book of First Samuel is starting out with a background of barrenness. This is how the whole story begins. This hopeless situation and this background of barrenness. And this is not the first time a story starts this way. This has been a theme in Scripture already. If you think back to when God called Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were infertile and could not have children. And for decades, God had promised to give them a child, but they had waited and waited and waited. And finally, God brought them a son, miraculously bringing to them a child named Isaac. And then Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, they too struggle to have children. Till Isaac cries out to God, it says in Genesis. And again, with their son Jacob and his wife Rachel, they also struggle to have children. It weighs on Rachel's heart for years, having this competition with one of Jacob's other wives trying to have children. She gives her maidservant to Jacob so she could have children through this surrogate, as was common in the ancient Near East. So desperate for children, it says God finally opens up her womb. So again and again and again we see God starting stories against this backdrop of barrenness and it's not an accidental feature. You've got to see this. It's not an accident, but God is intentionally setting up these circumstances in this way. And it's not just with these couples struggling with infertility. This is something God seems to be doing more broadly. Then in many of these stories God is beginning in places of hopelessness he's beginning in places of hopelessness and that's where he reveals his power i, I just want to acknowledge here this morning too that this is not just a theological question for some of you this is a live question that one in five couples struggle with infertility and this can be a weight on your heart here today now i don't want to make this sound light it's not at all and there is no one-size-fits-all answer to this It's just something we just have to sit in and grieve with you. We do not know why. What is God doing? Why would this take so long? I just simply want you to see here in 1 Samuel that there's a tendency about God's work in the world to start in hopeless places. Now, I don't necessarily mean to tie this to your specific life if you're struggling with infertility, that this is the cause of your own. Again, there's no one-size-fits-all answer I just want to look at God's tendency in his work of salvation. One commentator named Ralph Davis, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he says this, God's tendency, hear this, is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. So it's precisely when we don't have one iota of strength and ability to add anything, and we realize it's entirely beyond us, this is when God seems to show up in power that we would clearly have no room to boast, no room to look back and think, maybe this had something to do with me. But we would completely set behind that idea that God wants to ruin the mirage of our own self-reliance and our own ability. And he wants to instead bring us to this good oasis that he's our strength. He's the one that we're built on. So if you are in the midst of a hopeless place, If you are feeling entirely helpless and without ability, I hope you receive some encouragement this morning that this is often exactly where God begins. In your helplessness, in your hopelessness, this is where God begins to work. So that your heart would see, oh God, you are the one who's ultimately in control. You're the one who's bringing salvation. It is not from me. I can't save myself. I need you entirely. So if you're feeling desperate, again, be encouraged that this is exactly where God wants to meet you. So Hannah is desperate. And she is deeply longing for children. But in all of her grief, it gets only more difficult because of this other wife named Panina, who has so many children. It says in 1 Samuel that Elkanah and Peninnah and Hannah would go up to this place of worship called Shiloh. And this is where God's tabernacle, his tent of his presence, was located. Here's the Ark of the Covenant, this special uh, place of God's presence, and they would come and worship here. It says that Elkanah would give Penina and her children a portion of meat, but he would give to Hannah a double portion because of her grief, because he loved her. I love here that their worship in this day is really to eat a good steak before God, right? You, you are coming to eat and to feast with him. This is how we're supposed to worship God. There's something here, that's another sermon, but you feast with him, right? You come and you sit and eat So he's trying to encourage Hannah, but the same thing that leads Elkanah to try to support her, raise her up in her difficulty, is what Penina uses to provoke, to provoke Hannah. It's interesting that in the Hebrew this word provoke is actually more a word used for storms, for thunder and for lightning. And one pastor, Tim Keller, draws out that this is really the only place in the Old Testament where this word is used, and it's not a literal storm. So, the kind of provoking that Panina is doing here, she's just causing such irritation, a storm in Hannah's life, trying to irritate her and to torment her. And can you imagine the comments she's probably getting? I wonder, Hannah, why you can't have any kids. It's clearly not Elkanah's fault because I have all sorts of kids here today. And it's clearly not our worship because we're going up to Shiloh every year. is a devout man. I think the problem has to be with you, Hannah. Maybe God doesn't care about you. God probably doesn't hear you. You don't mean anything to God, Hannah. That's why you don't have any children. What have you done wrong in your life that God's punishing you? And just torment and irritating and provoking her like a storm so that her barrenness is not just a weight in itself in the hopelessness, but there's this torment and irritation that's making it all the more difficult. And you very likely do not have a rival wife at home who's tormenting you, right? I hope not. But do we not have an enemy, right? Do we not have an enemy who is also coming to speak into our hearts and to torment and irritate us? Who's often trying to highlight certain weaknesses in our life to bring out again and again, you failed here. You were inadequate here. You weren't enough here. And drawing out truth after truth after truth, but not telling the whole story. Shane and Shane, wonderful artists, they have a song called Embracing Accusations. This is a wonderful song. And they talk about how our enemy that we have in Satan, who he's called the accuser, and that he he stands to accuse the people of God, saying, You're not enough. You you have failed here. You are unworthy. And Shane and Shane highlight how he's right. They say, You're telling the truth. That we are cursed and we have gone astray. But you're not telling the whole story as our accuser. I hear these lyrics from this song, Embracing Accusations. They say, I hear him, meaning the accuser saying, Cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Look at this. Hallelujah. He's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed. That I am cursed and gone astray. And I cannot gain salvation. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the first verse so conveniently, just the first verse, so conveniently over me. He's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. So in all the torment that you hear from the enemy in your spirit, that you are not enough, That you have sinned, that you have disqualified yourself, that you are cursed and gone astray, that part of you would learn to say, hallelujah, you are absolutely right. I cannot save myself. Absolutely right. Hallelujah, I am cursed and I have gone astray. But that's just the first verse. You're forgetting the part where Jesus saves me. You're forgetting the part in all of my inadequacy that he came and died for me. And so now I know I can be made right with God, not because of myself, but because of who he is for me, this promising, faithful God who gave himself for me. So in the midst of your accusations this week, maybe just let the devil preach to you for a little while. Maybe let him get all those accusations in, embrace them, and at the end, remind yourself of the gospel. Absolutely. Who would I be without my king? I'm entirely inadequate on my own, but he has qualified me. Let your heart be encouraged. Embrace his accusations. So Elkanah and penina they're all feasting here at Shiloh, worshiping God. And Hannah, in her grief, she's not really able to eat. And it says that she stands up here in this tent of meeting and she begins to pour out her soul before God. This is not just a going through the motions kind of prayer, but she is giving her all, pouring out her heart before God. And she makes this heart-wrenching prayer and this vow where she says to God, she says, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will be used on his head. It's kind of a strange ending here, isn't it? No razor will be used on his head. What's, what's that about? It's actually a specific type of vow called a Nazarite vow, where someone who wasn't from a priestly family, they could give themselves in service to God for their whole life. It was called a Nazarite vow. And to symbolize and show that they were a Nazarite, they would never cut their hair. So you could recognize this is someone who's set apart for the Lord, that their entire life is given over to God. So Hannah's saying, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you as a Nazarite to serve you his entire life. So she's pouring out her soul to God. Says that she's kind of whispering quietly to herself. Her mouth is moving, but you can't see and hear any words. Eli who is the priest in charge at Shiloh. He sees Hannah praying. And she sees, he sees her in all her distress and her mumbling, and he thinks she's drunk. And he says, put away your wine. How long are you going to continue in your drinking? And Hannah clarifies, no, no my Lord, I'm, I'm not drinking at all. I was just pouring out my soul to the Lord because I'm so heavy-hearted. I'm pouring out my heart to God. And Eli beautifully says to her, he says, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked. And incredibly, Hannah stands up, something about this word that charges her heart, refreshes her, and she goes and she eats and she's no longer downcast. Her face is no longer sad. I want you to see the significance of this though. This is a vital moment in the story. The commentators Thomas Heath and J.D. Greer, they draw out. Notice the order of what's just occurred. Hannah is full of misery and torment. She prays, and this is not the order. She's not full of torment. Then she prays. Then she's given a child. And then she has peace. That's not the order here in 1 Samuel. Do you see this? Rather, Hannah is full of torment. She prays then she's full of peace, then she's changed, and only after that does she, as we'll see, receive a child. There's significance here. It seems that Hannah, in hearing this word from Eli, realizes she really is seen and heard by God. Something moves her heart out of this request, where she's not looking now for a child to give her meaning or significance. Her identity is not in being a mother. Her identity is not in receiving love from Elkanah, her husband. It's not in romance. But she finds, I am seen and heard by God. And I know who I am. This is why she can stand up and no longer be downcast. She doesn't have a child yet. It's, It's not even happened, but there's a confidence here. I have something in God that's so much better that I did not realize before. And now there's a peace. Now there's a wholeness because who she is is founded on God, not on family, the idolatry of children, or the idolatry of romance. She has set herself on God. It says that Elkanah and Penina and Hannah, they go home. They go back to their home in Ephraim. It says that the Lord remembered Hannah. And she had a child. She had a son. Beautifully, miraculously, mercifully, God gives her this son she was asking for. It's odd, this phrase, though, the Lord remembered Hannah. Isn't that strange? It's not as though God was suddenly like, oh my goodness, I forgot Hannah, right? I've been meaning to give her a child for so long. I just got lost on my to-do list. I guess I should finally get around and give her a child. That's not what First Samuel is wanting us to get. Rather, what it means by the Lord remembered her is he's putting into action his deliverance. He's always been there. He's always known everything about Hannah's life. He's known her every thought before a word is on her tongue. He's completely aware of Hannah and he's had this plan all along to intervene in the midst of her hopelessness and to work salvation for his people as we're going to see. He's not forgotten her at all. He's simply putting into action his deliverance for her. It seems Hannah, she knows this because she names her son Samuel, which means heard by God. So the one who thought she was never heard, the one whose prayer wasn't even audible in the first place, the one who was mocked and tormented and provoked, she is heard by God. What comfort for us that this is not just a story about Hannah, but that you here today would walk out with this knowledge. You truly are heard by God. That he's aware of your every need. And before a word is on your tongue, he knows it completely. (laughs) Such is his kindness to you and to me. We are heard by God. I love that Hannah keeps her word. She keeps her vow. She brings Samuel, once he's weaned, probably around three years old, back to Shiloh to be given into service to the Lord. And when she comes and brings Samuel, she also brings with her a prayer that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And this prayer is pivotal for understanding the whole book of 1 Samuel. And this prayer is mirrored by another prayer at the end of a second Samuel that's written by David, a song of praise. So Hannah's song at the beginning of first Samuel is mirrored by this other prayer at the end of second Samuel. They hem in as bookends, these books attributed to Samuel and they show us the essence of what these books are about. Do you see this? So they hem in as bookends, these books attributed to Samuel, to show us what they are about. And at the heart of these songs from Hannah and from David is this confidence in the upside-down working and deliverance of God. What I mean is this, that God raises up the weak, those who know they're not enough and trust in him, and he humbles the strong and those who think they are sufficient in and of themselves. And this is not how we normally view the world. Isn't it that the strong survive? It's the strong that prevail and rule and have everything in their life. That's who succeeds, not the weak. This is not how our world typically works as we view it. But Hannah, Hannah through this many moments of God's deliverance, is seeing through how the world really operates. Through the eyes of heaven, she's getting a different perspective. Through this mini moment of deliverance, she's recognizing this is not just a one-off time where God delivered me. This is the norm of how God operates and brings deliverance. What he's done in my life is how God works more generally in salvation. So when 1 Samuel is starting with a woman named Hannah in the hill country of Ephraim. It's not just drawing out some random internal family drama for us to get lost in. It's showing us more deeply how God is bringing salvation to the world. It's showing us ultimately what he will do one day in Jesus. So this mini moment is showing us something far more broadly about how God operates in the world. His upside down deliverance. Look with me at her song. Look at verse one, what it says here in her song. It says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn, my strength is lifted high. She realizes where she's founded now. She realizes where her strength is. She goes on and says this in verse four. The bows of the warriors are broken, the strong, broken. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. Do you see how there's this upside-down reversal? Those who had much strength are now weak. Those who were hungry are now satisfied. It's flipped upside down. So when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, as we read this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. you see how this is upside down? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What Hannah is experiencing here is more broadly what God will be doing in his salvation. So blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who realize you do not have what it takes. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. But it's not weakness in and of itself that we're aiming for. It's God who is doing this work. Look one more time at verse 6 here, what Hannah writes in her song. It's the Lord who brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy, this is beautiful, from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Hear this good news this morning, King's Cross. That again, what God is doing here in the life of Hannah, of raising up someone who's downtrodden by his grace, so he is still doing today in our lives. Raising us up by his grace, you who are full of barrenness and hopelessness and helplessness, he is raising us up. Hear this. When God brought Hannah, Hannah destitute and heartbroken and entirely empty, when God brought Hannah a son, When he brought her a son in the midst of her barrenness and helplessness, he knew that one day he would ultimately bring the whole world, the true and greater son, not through a moment of barrenness, but through the more impossible circumstances of a virgin giving birth to a child. He knew that he would do that even then. And he knew he'd be giving the world the Savior so that the downtrodden and barren and the helpless could be lifted up. And so when God hears Hannah and her desperate cry for help and her vow that she would give her son back to the Lord, God knew that he would hear us in our desperate cries for forgiveness and that he would keep his own vow. He wouldn't be faithful because of our vows to him, but he would be faithful because of his own vow to rescue the world and to bring deliverance. He knew this all the way back then, and when God... When he heard Hannah and her cry, when he heard her and her need for deliverance and he raised her up out of that ash heap of her lowness and her need, when he raised her up, he knew that he would also raise up lonely and desperate sinners and seat them to reign with Christ. Do you see this? That he knew all along that I'm raising up Hannah and so in the same way I will raise up these needy sinners that they could reign with me in the heavenly realms. And that these destitute people that have nothing, I will clothe them with my righteousness. That he's known this all along. So what God is doing beautifully here in Hannah's life would be a picture again for you to see the kindness of his heart. He raises us up from the ash heap so that we may reign with him and know him. I'm going to invite the band to come back up that we could worship more. But I want you to take this one thought with you. How can your heart be like Hannah in appealing to God and putting yourself entirely before him? Not trying to hide your hopelessness, not trying to hide your desperation. But set yourself completely before him. Say, God, I trust that you hear me. That the ultimate Samuel is truly Jesus. That I am heard by God because of who Christ is for me. So bring him your hopelessness. Bring him your need and see how he meets you. Would you pray with me?